Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast, where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, the host of the Modern Mystic Podcast, and today I am delighted to welcome Tara Rubenstein. Tara is a writer, teacher, shamanic healer, and magic maker who leads transformational workshops and groups for both adults and kids. She is founder of Artemis Pack and under this umbrella offers kids groups, which are like a red tent goddess Girl Scout experience and a rites of passage program for children who identify as girls or non-binary. Her kid programs offer a unique mix of witchy intersectional feminism, social justice, and earth-based wisdom. For her adult programs, she reads tarot cards professionally, leads shamanic journeys, and offers ancestral healing work through Artemis Pack as well. In all of her offerings, she teaches people to learn to listen to their intuition and celebrate their wild, authentic selves. Tara, welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So, Tara, what does it mean to you to be a modern mystic? Well, I have, I have two answers to this one. The first is that it means experiencing this beautiful planet as a place of magic. So, for me, that means, you know, the trees are filled with magic. The waters are filled with magic. The stars shine down magic on us that everything around us just radiates magic and that we can experience that magic and live with reverence for the simple fact of our existence. And when we choose to, to live this way or work on living this way, we are participating in the dance of life on this planet without thinking that we are the choreographers. We are, you know, part of the dance, absolutely, and we get to participate in this beautiful, magical world. But I think we run into trouble when we start thinking that, you know, we run the dance or lead the dance even. And so to be a modern mystic means to experience the magic and dance with the magic without needing to, th- to think that we know where we're going. Mm. That's such an exquisite answer. Did you have one to say? I do. That's just the first answer. So that's part one. (laughs) And then part two, and this is such a central part of how I teach and what I teach. It's like a foundational part of, of, you know, what I believe in is that imagination is a gateway to sacred experience. So kids and adults ask me all the time, is this real? So they're asking me, are goddesses real? Are the trees really talking to me? Am I making all of this stuff up? And what I say to them and what I believe is that imagination is the bridge to spirit. So we need our imaginations. Our imaginations are the greatest gift we have to experience 
what lies beneath and beyond the surface. And so the question, am I making this up, is sort of irrelevant if our imagination is the thing that allows us to do part one of the question and experience the magic of this world. Mm, So, so profound. And there's so many things you said that I just love. I'd love to go back to part one. I love this. I think you're my first guest to give me like a two part, (laughs) very (laughs) wonderfully clear (laughs) answer. So that'll be really easily digestible for the listeners. Thank you. You know, just the whole elements of magic in the way of reverence for being alive and, and the gift of that that's reflected, as you said, through nature and just, you know, even my main tagline, right, is the finding the magic in the present moment and the mystical and the mundane, you know, and that's I'm so about that and how you connected it to this understanding that we aren't ultimately in charge, as you put it so sweetly, we aren't the choreographers and how I like to think of it as like I dance with the divine, right? Like when, you know, if someone says to you, may I have this dance or you're flowing and moving, you know, with the current of life. And when we can let go a little bit and relax into the magic of whatever life is presenting us, you know, that's when we really dance and whirl and soar. And that was such a, such a gorgeous, gorgeous way of framing it, I think. And then the other aspect that was really profound is that whole idea of imagination. And like you said, I have so many students and clients ask me the same thing. Well, is this really real? I feel like I'm making this up. You know, whether they're having a certain kind of meditation or working on their psychic abilities or just working on connecting deeper in their moment-to-moment lives with presence. And yes, imagination, it is a technology. And, you know, you work so much with kids. And as I think most of us know, right, the kids have such access to their imagination, I feel like, in a way that adults don't always. Do you feel like that? Is that your experience? It is. But then there's this critical thing that happens at around eight years old, I think, the age my daughter is right now. And she and many of the other kids that I work with around eight years old start to say, oh, well, the tooth fairy is not real. It's, it's really just dad you know, who's coming and leaving money under my pillow. Or I heard somebody say that this thing that was part of my magical understanding of the universe is really just humans. Or the things that I see on TV, the way TV or movies show us magic, waving a wand and seeing a purple, you know, stream of energy come out of it, that doesn't really happen in our world. Therefore, magic isn't real. And imagination is just, it's just stories. It's just fiction. And so there's this heartbreaking thing where you're like, yes, kids are natural at magic, but they also experience this turning point of learning that what they have been described as magic or the way that they've been given their imagination, there's a break with what feels true to them at that point. And I think that we have an opportunity with kids to really help them develop imagination and really, you know, for ourselves too, this is true for adults as well, to say that imagination and spirituality, it's the gift of being able to experience something that you can't see, but that you feel and know to be true. And that those 
that imagination, that that inner truth can be manifested. It can come out into the world, not always in ways that are visible, but in ways that are real. Mm, so, so eloquent and, and so important because as adults, and I feel like, you know, because just as you said, and it's interesting, you said at that age of eight, because that's period of time, seven, eight, even from a Western astrology perspective, which I don't know if you play with or, or work with at all, but that's that Saturn return. It's the first phase. So that's considered Saturn is a planet that's very restrictive and starts to create like layers of conditioning. It also is, of course, an opportunity for growth too, but there are these cycles of Saturn every seven to eight years that are these times where there's a layering of sorts, a, a boundary put up. So it's interesting that you you mentioned that age that you see in your work. And I love what you said just about the idea of, you know, how imagination takes us to what lies beneath and beyond the surface. Because I feel like as we start to age, we start to get messaging as you articulated to look more and more on the surface of things and in this tangible world and this conditioning of what seems to be really going on and perhaps is going on on this one plane of reality. But there are so many layers like a rainbow to this plane of reality. And as you put it beautifully, right, what's beyond and beneath? And let's not lose that connection to that. And then I feel like as adults, you know, a lot of adults have forgotten those bridges to their imagination and to those places beneath and beyond. And so then it becomes a practice, particularly being a mystic and on the path of self-knowledge and self-knowing to, to learn how to access those bridges again and get back into our imagination capacities. So beautiful. I, I thought of that quote, you know, that quote of Einstein who says, imagination is more important than knowledge for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. Well, Tara, one of the things that I've seen you execute so beautifully is creating ritual. And that's one of your expertise. So let's talk about that a little bit as another entry point into our conversation today. For me, rituals are just such an intrinsic part of the fabric of my day-to-day -day life. And one of the most powerful ways that I know how to remember the potential of life, to feel into the magic of the present moment and the sanctity of all of it. So first of all, I, I wanted to talk about the meaning of the word ritual. My understanding etymologically, it comes from the, the French. I speak French, so I'm partial to that ritual, which is connected, of course, to Latin regarding the Latin words rituus and ritualis, which have to do with rites, observance of rites, custom, ceremony. And even in Sanskrit, the, the yoga ancient language, there's a word that I know, rita, which is also said to be even older etymological root from the Latin into the Sanskrit, which initially meant visible order. So it's really kind of fascinating to contemplate those, the visible order of things. I'd love to hear, you know, your take on this word ritual, what it means to you, 
and, you know, all the ways that we can think about ritual. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Ritual, I think about in two ways. I think about what I was taught as maintenance ritual and radical ritual. So maintenance ritual is reflected in those definitions that you just shared about maintaining order. So a maintenance ritual might be something like lighting a candle before you sit down to pray or meditate, or just the act of sitting down to pray or meditate in a daily way and connecting to the bigger and deeper energy that we were talking about, you know, what lies beneath and beyond the surface, acknowledging that there is more than just this moment, more than just what's happening right in front of us. And any of those maintenance rituals, they allow us to keep a strong sense of center and a strong thread to the bigger things that we believe in and care about. And so they're so important because, you know, it's, it's, it's like doing the daily dishes. It clears the way for there to be possibility for work to happen, um, for connection to happen. And then there's radical ritual, which is when you are doing something with the intention of change either releasing something that no longer serves you or acknowledging something new, stepping across a threshold to a new experience or level. And so when I do rituals, one of the rituals that I do with with young people is a rite of passage around adolescence. I do primarily this happens around menarche or first period. But we acknowledge this as a, as a really meaningful point of change from which there's no going back. And that that can be this beautiful, exciting, special experience if we kind of create the traditions and make the space for that to be so. Well, I love what you talked about. And I love the idea of thinking about ritual in two different ways. And even for our listeners, I mean, the, the truth is, is that from a sociological standpoint, all, rituals are featured in every society known to humankind. As simple as waving or shaking someone's hand, you know, they could be considered an act of ritual. So for those listeners who aren't as familiar with ritual or that feels maybe a little out there, ritual is really so much of, as Tara said, that which keeps us really, I love to use the word like centered and threaded to what we believe. And in my mind, really like who we are at the essence of self. So some people, it's like their, you know, cup of coffee in the morning. I have a friend who like, it's not just the caffeine, you know, she talks about going to the park and how she sits and, you know, that's her ritual. That's what really connects her to source and soul just wanted to, you know, kind of frame it for everyone in addition to that beautiful radical ritual you described, which is really denoting and marketing a profound time in one's life. And as you put it so beautifully, a time when there's no turning back. And I feel like in the rituals I've led and I've partaken in, it's about to often 
really expressing on the outside what's happening internally in our psyche and at those pivotal times in our lives. So I feel like, you know, often as a society for those who are Western listeners like Tara and I are, and some of you aren't, but I feel like there's a lot of, you know, understanding and emphasis on weddings. You know, we have often showers around these things or with babies, but it can be so profound to look at other times in life like you do, Tara, like the rite of passage. I feel like that's something in, at least in the United States where you and I live, it's not so much always honored at all. And I love how you've really created such a beautiful community and programming around that rite of passage. Can you please share with listeners, what are other ideas, say, for different periods of one's life of things you could do? I know for myself and my family, when our kids turn of age, 13, we have a a family ritual we created where we take everyone camping and whoever is turning 13 goes and collects the wood by themselves and makes the fire the first night and then gets to choose a sacred song, the the song we sing and then we all sing, right? So that's a totally self-created ritual. And so, yeah, could you talk about that? What are other ideas for listeners of things that we can do for ourselves and for our, our beloveds and, and to help people kind of get their juices flowing about ways they can integrate more of those radical rituals into their life at certain periods of time? So I think that when you are approaching a milestone or a moment that feels important, creating ritual for yourself or with others is so powerful. And there's a sort of short list of things that I think are useful questions to ask yourself. The first is, is this something that I want other people to participate with me? Many, most radical rituals include some form of witness, you know, so it's not just that you're turning 40, or, you know, that you are retiring, or that you are launching a new business, it's that you are doing this in a context, you know, you have people who are supporting you, who are witnessing you, cheering you on. And so one of the first things with a ritual is is asking for witness and sort of calling people together to be with you. And then another thing with creating ritual around any milestone is around actions. So like you described with the camping trip, you know, you've developed this tradition of gathering firewood and picking a song. And those things are relatively simple, right? You could do them anytime, anywhere, you know, any camping trip. But because you've ascribed meaning to them, you said this is something that you get to do because of this special time, it becomes bigger, you know, it becomes a ritual action and not just a, you know, practical get it done action. And so the actions of a ritual can be simple. They can be, um, you know, a, a speak round where everyone says one thing about how they're proud of you or how they've seen you grow or, you know, a, a wish that they want for you. It could be lighting a candle. It could be creating a threshold on the floor that symbolizes the before and the after 
and stepping over that threshold. The actions give us a way to embody and experience in a sort of physical way this transition and this meaningful experience with the witness of community around us. So helpful. Really, really great. And, you know, you said these things which really are supportive to the listeners when you turn a certain age. You know, certain ages feel bigger at times for us and certain ages, you know, the same age for someone else doesn't, right? Or as you mentioned, retiring or launching a new business or maybe even a transition of a job or coming to the end of a significant relationship or the beginning of a significant relationship, right? All these moments in time that feel paramount to us. And I think that's really the key point when you think about, okay, when would it be really helpful for me to do a ritual or when it would be very life enhancing? And it's, it's around those times for the radical rituals that can be really, really sweet. And I loved how you know we're talking about ways that you can be creative because I know I grew up so blessed hanging out with a lot of healers and shamans and priestesses and at ashrams. And I still learned in the way of ritual, very specific ways of doing things when I was a young person. And there were just a lot of steps. And sometimes it is that way, right? When we're in different traditions or lineages, it can be that way. And I think there's magic to that as well. I think that people who are participating in situations where there's prescribed ritual, the listeners who are, you know, might know this or experience this, whether they're, you know, in the Jewish tradition with different ceremonies. And I have friends who were in that tradition and, and yoga tradition, Vedic specifically lineages. There's certain ways of doing things that it's very like A plus B plus C. And that can be very beautiful. And that, you know, has power, I think, to it. So I want to honor, acknowledge that when we've been doing something in a certain way that, you know, for hundreds or arguably thousands of years, people have been doing. There's a collective wake and a draft, so to speak, that you're drafting upon of energy that's been built. And there's a lot of power to that. There's a lot of alchemical, transformative energy and power when you put yourself in that wake and that flow. And that can be really amazing. And then, Tara, what you and I are talking about too, another way to, to move towards ritual is more of a creative stance and having it really be sourced from the inside. So for my own journey, when I started leading teacher trainings and workshops after I had been teaching for a couple of years, you, I was launching things from a place of things that were very formalized. And then very quickly from within all of these downloads and ideas and, and impulses I had to start to do things and create things in other ways started to emerge. And I remember after one particular profound ritual, I literally was like, what? Like I left, you know, when you're holding space and leading these kind of things, they kind of just flow through you. You're just like this tool. And afterwards, I literally went like, what? Like, is that, is that? legit? Like, what did I just do? You know? <laughs> and I didn't even know where these things were coming from. But then, you know, I had so many people having such deep experiences of themselves and their own power and profound life-changing kind of moments. And so I knew, you know, this was absolutely a way to do things. And then I started to move more towards my Celtic 
priestess lineage and I started learning, oh, this is a whole sphere of healers and shamans and people who, who do this this way, where it's totally like you're DJing your own ritual experience. And so it's such a, an exciting thing. And for some people in their temperaments, it could be more prescribed and then other people can have the permission and exploration. And then some people, it might be some of each that, that supports their dance with the divine, so to speak. <laughs> Thank you for sharing so many of your stories. Part of what it brings up for me is that there's such a longing for ritual, I think, and at least I've experienced from people, you know, there's just a hunger for ways to be, be connecting to meaning to, you know, go back to the beginning of this conversation to really feel the ways that we are a part of this big dance and that our experiences as they unfold are held and seen and witnessed and, and, you know, that we're not just having these big major experiences without some kind of reflection, but that the ways to do that in the United States for many of us who are not currently deeply rooted in a specific um, either ancestral tradition or, you know, inherited or adopted tradition it's it's hard it's hard to feel the sense of i know what to do you know i know what the steps are i know what the pieces are and that makes it mm -hmm. so much harder to feel that feeling of i know that i'm about to have this big experience but i don't know i don't know how other people will feel about it what if other people aren't comfortable with this and who's going to lead it and how will it go and I'm so familiar with all of that. And, and I, I think it's brave work to say, I want a ritual. I deserve a ritual. And the reality is probably all of the people around me will be fed by it if, if I make space mm. for this in my own life. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so important is being mindful that when we're being creative and when we're being, you know, visionaries and dreaming about how we're going to go about this, to be careful of things I've heard you talk about in other episodes, Kilkenny, about being careful not to appropriate, you know, not doing things because it's like something that you've seen somewhere, like visually evocative things that feel like they could be powerful, but from a source that you don't totally know or from a culture that is not something that you are raised in or trained in. So my experience with beginner ritual or sort of finding ritual is that it really is good to start simple, you know, and, and to mm -hmm. not, you know, to, like, yes, creativity is boundless and, and anything is possible and overcomplicating things can, can, get in the way sometimes, you know, it really, it's okay to start with something very simple and then see where that expands naturally. And here's, here's my example. So when I started doing this menarch ceremony, this first period ceremony for the kids in my program, you know, first of all, they were horrified. No one wanted to do it. They were like, please, Tara, don't make us do this. And I was like, listen, we're doing this. It's important. Trust me. And 
the actions were very simple. I had this idea that I wanted them to honor how old they were at the time and how how they at this age are kind of stepping into the their their own story. You know, they're inheriting this lineage from their families of origin or the people who raised them. And then they're kind of stepping into this chapter of of much greater determination and, you know, they're leading their own way. And so I came up with this idea of, you know, doing a braid. So I I took some red ribbon and I measured out about an arm's length for each year they've been alive. So for most of them, that's somewhere between 10 and 12. And then I had invited their parent to the ritual and their parent would hold one end of the ribbon, kind of symboling the anchor of the matrilineal line. And then the kid braids the ribbon together. And as they do, the rest of the group sings a song. It's a very simple ritual. It lasts literally one minute to do. But it's become very, very important. And, you know, this year at the beginning of COVID, we had a, a, you know, one of our participants, you know, we were doing this ceremony and we had to make adjustments because of, you know, social distancing. And I thought, you know, maybe we won't sing the song this time because I don't want us to be so close together singing. And it's been a few years now since that first one where everybody was like, no, 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 we're so embarrassed. And they were like, of course we have to sing the song. We'll just back up. <laughs> you know, we'll just, you know, give each other some distance and sing the song. And it really helped me see how this very simple action, you know, braiding these ribbons and singing this song have taken on meaning in a deep, deep way. And you know, I think about what you're saying with the gathering of the wood and the singing the song. You know, it's like it's it's really okay for it to be simple. It's really okay for it to to you know not take a long time, and and to do it from a place of this idea that I have feels both comfortable to me, achievable to me, and you know it. I you know to the best of my knowledge, it's not taking from some other tradition. So many really, really key, fabulous points. One of them I want to circle back to is how you spoke of other people around you are fed when you are the central person and the ritual. And that's something I've as well seen time and time again. Because I think like in your beautiful example of the Menarch ceremony, in a situation where in our Western culture, a, a young woman's period is something that isn't always celebrated, noticed, honored, often not even spoken of. You know, there could be shame around, uncomfortability, right? And so in any circumstance, I'm speaking to this one specifically, that, you know, when other people then see the ritual, it heals that layer often for many people. And often gives then permission for the people witnessing to not only be like nourished and buoyed by the gravitas and beauty and power of celebrating with someone else in the moment, but offers a 
gateway into their own pausing during a comparable experience and healing and claiming and feeling empowered when they have a parallel experience. So yes, it's really profound, really profound for everyone involved, I think. Yes, I agree. I'm curious if you could offer, let's say like a couple, maybe two things one could do in the morning or one could do before bed that people could start to try in the way of just a day-to-day ritual if they're not doing anything right now that you think are good launching points, more in that quote-unquote maintenance Mm -hmm. ritual land. So a few years back when the actions were happening at Standing Rock in protest of the Keystone Pipeline, it was a, a really big reminder to me about how much I take water for granted. And so I made a decision that, you know, for a year, every time I drank water, before I drank water, I would say, thank you, water. And it was this like tiny, you know, tiny, one second long thing. But it changed my relationship to water. And to the world around me. And in part because when I did it, I thought every time about these incredible leaders and activists who are really working on all of our behalfs for a healthy planet. It gave me a feeling of gratitude for their work as well as the inherent goodness of water. So one recommendation is think of one thing to say thank you for in your day, to really notice in your day the sunshine, the air, you know, the water, whatever it is. And pause and acknowledge the sacredness, the magic, the importance of that thing. That's one thing you can do. Another thing that is a ritual I learned many years ago is about the practice of leaving your worries at the door. And so if you're working from home or not leaving the house that often, there's, I'm sure, another kind of way to do this. But the way that I learned it is that when you're coming home at the end of the day, after school or after work, before you enter your home, And you can even make this kind of a physical thing by putting a basket or a, you know, a a little kind of place, pausing before you open your door, taking a breath and leaving behind any of your stresses and worries of the day so that when you enter your space, when you enter your home, you are entering with a lighter heart. So sweet. Love that. And what about in the morning? I love the water one. And I I love this connection and serendipity because I have a whole practice that I started doing with water a few years ago. And I don't know if you've heard, I have a whole episode on water with the water priestess expert, but I 
started with the drinking of the water. And now I actually have, I created, you know, just like you said, I just started really simply being a water lover and just wanting to, like you, connect it to nature and where it comes from and the idea of healing the earth. I love how you tied it in politically to Standing Rock and that whole situation, um, which I wasn't doing. So thank you for up-leveling that thought (laughs) with current politics and thinking about that, but with healing the environment. And then I started taking it outside, you know, and I built on that and pouring it into the earth, you know, just again, physicalizing this idea of sending, you know, positive thoughts, blessings, you know, all the ways you can think about it into healing the earth and then reminding me, reflecting back because I was doing this action of my own commitment to the ways that I am supporting the earth and up-leveling that for myself, doing that every day. And then it's come to a point where I've made a whole little separate altar surrounding water. So just for the listeners to hear, like you can start, as Tara said so beautifully, you know, with just one simple drinking water and then how it can burgeon and birth into something a lot more elaborate or it never needs to. But that's something that I do every day. Yeah, I'm wondering too, in the morning, is there something you suggest like when, you know, people are in bed or just jumping out of bed? How do you start your day or what's a what's a launching point for people when they're in their bedroom, say? First of all, I, I just want to echo back to you that, yes, that was that is exactly what I mean. How starting with something that feels very small and sort of personal and meaningful and sort of maintenance oriented can grow into something that is bigger and beautiful. And like I can very easily imagine you, Kilkenny, inviting other people to come into that ritual with the water now that it's grown and developed and to make it something that is a more radical ritual experience. So I love that. Thank you. And and thank you. I just want to point out to the listeners too, because that was such a important magnification as to what you said, right? It's with something small. And then like you're saying, then it can be birthed from the maintenance level to the Mm -hmm. radical level. So that's really an important point. Thanks Mm -hmm. for highlighting that. And then in the morning, I think one of the things that is, you know, I will admit to not being always the best at this, but I think that the, the thing about the morning is, and so, so, so many cultures talk about the importance of starting the morning with some sort of sacred action, whether that's prayer or an offering burning incense, you know, making some kind of offering a first piece of your morning breakfast or coffee or water or whatever to the spirits of, you know, the universe. And any of those things I think are powerful. But one of the things that I think I struggle with, and I know many, many, many people struggle with, is having one of the very first things I do be to look at my phone, or to engage with technology. And that it's mind trap. (laughs) It's a a fact of modern existence that is very, very challenging. And it can really start our day with a jolt of, you know, starting from a place of sort of stress or, you know, immediately being pulled into the world and not allowing us to protect this kind of the first sacred moments of our day as sacred moments of our day. And so if I have one suggestion that, you know, I'm offering to myself as much as any of your listeners, it's to really be conscious that the first moments of your day are a sacred beginning and to the extent possible, resisting 
a phone and doing one thing, anything, walk to your window, look outside, take three breaths, greet the world, greet the day before stepping into the kind of tangible, physical, material facts of our lives. Yes, so, so important. I really, really want to highlight that because as you said, you know, most people are programmed just up the phone, especially because our alarms are in the phone. I've noticed that. And I know with myself, and, and there's research, you can research this. I mean, still to this day, like getting a notification for most people in the way of our nervous system is comparable to seeing a bear in the forest. Like this is how jolted our nervous systems get with technology, particularly after times when we've been in a state of heightened relaxation. And I honor and concur how all these different traditions, I mean, across the board, all over the world, various spiritual traditions, healing traditions, you know, whether you're listening to Abraham Hicks, you know, the gamut, talk about this state of sleep and how it's such a psychological, spiritual, deep reset and completely nervous system calming, soothing opportunity. And so if we just reach for the phone, it takes our nervous systems, right, from that relax and restore mode to the, you know, flight, fight, freeze mode so quickly. And the other thing about ritual, if you research it from a psychological sphere, you know, ritual is associated with healing our nervous system. That's one of the great benefits of it psychologically, if you're in that lens. And so it's such an important point. I know I'm not the person and some people, the shocks, like I don't jump out of bed at all. And so for myself, I have next to my bedstand, I mean, a little assortment of all these things to do. So the phone is across my room. I have, it gets me up and out of the bed, but that's how I've orchestrated for myself or like the phones across from my bed, you know, uh, across the bedroom and right next to me where my hand is, is a whole little assortment of little things that I do. Simple things, but like three or four of them. And that's a sweet way. I feel like that the ritual has helped me sweetly wake up and connect to that dance with the divine and reminding me right away of the magic of life. And after that deep reset of sleep, we're really more open to receiving our intuition and receiving and remembering the blessing of aliveness and the magic that's available to us. So if we have something right next to the bed, even that takes 10 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, that can be a really, really powerful thing. I loved how you talked about going to the window. I stand and do something as well. So we can choreograph these things, but friends who are just beginning this process, you know, you can start with one thing and it can really be a game changer pre-phone. Yes. The conversation on sleep, of course, brings up this whole world of ritual around dreams, which we can't go into Mm. in this conversation. But, you know, that's a whole other branch of this topic on ritual and engagement with the magic of the universe and the gateway of the imagination. So much to say about dreams. And if you are someone who has the space in your life to have a morning routine that has sacredness in it and a little bit of time, I definitely absolutely suggest 
recording your dreams. Agreed. hundred percent. Every person in my house has a dream journal right under their mattress. Yeah, it is because it's such a access pathway that we traverse every night, whether you think you dream or not to the liminal realms. I have a, I have half of an episode already written out that I'm going to do on dreams. So I'm, that I've, you know, it's just in the works, kind of in the background that I have outlined. And I agree. It's such a powerful, powerful topic of conversation, you know, with ritual. Maybe I'll have to invite you back as a guest speaker, collaborating with that or something. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wondering, think about death and the topic of death. And I feel like, Again, in the United States, and we have so many listeners from around the world, and so you can think about if you're a listener, how it is in the country you live in, but how death is or not, which is my experience, or limited in a limited way, ritualized. Yeah, I just wanted to speak with you about that. I feel like it's something that just in our country isn't spoken of a lot ahead of time, isn't really normalized as much. And any thoughts or ways that you can offer to help support this conversation and even ritualize the preparation and or experience mm. yes. of death. Thank you. Yes. Oh, this is such a big topic, juicy topic and important topic when it comes to ritual and magic and all of these things. And it's a big, big one in my household um, because my you know, a lot of the magic and work that I do is with, with young people and with adults, but my partner does, has an entire career around supporting people through the dying process. And so, you know, our, in our household and in my sort of philosophy and my internal work, you know, these things are very, very close. So a few things, if there is someone in your life who is dying but has not yet died there's a whole process that i think is so valuable that is around sort of gathering gathering sort of the things that that remind you of them gathering the memories close to you and in some way, you know, for me, what I do is I create an altar and I light a candle for that person every day, you know, surrounded by the things that remind me of them. And I sit with that and I sit, you know, vigil with, with this candle, which for me represents their spirit. I did this this year for my grandmother who was dying in California and I was not able to go and be with her because of travel restrictions, but I sat and I sat with this candle and I sat with my memories of her and with, you know, the sort of knowledge that there was family with her and I sang and I talked out loud to her. And this is one of those things where I, I feel so strongly about this bridge of imagination and the capacity of our spirit, the capacity of our energy to travel to places where we can't physically go. And so, you know, so many people in our lives in this world were not able to physically be with them when they're passing, and yet our hearts are there 
you know, our hearts are with them. And I think treating it as though you were in fact with them is a powerful, powerful, powerful action and ritual, you know, to, to make some way of sitting with them and being with them and believing in your whole body that that matters for you and for them, you know, to, to add to the energy of their um, passing, feeling supported and well-loved. Mm. And then, you know, for those loved ones who die and, you know, have died recently or even died in the past, I very much believe in the process of continuing to honor them in various ways, both immediately after their passing and in the years to come. So in my family, always around Halloween, we gather all the pictures of all the ancestors and we make a family altar of all the people, both in our families and in our friendships. And, you know, even including the sort of political leaders who we've lost and admire you know, we, we add them to this altar and we light candles for them and tell their stories and remember them and talk about them. And, you know, Halloween seems to be a time in many different places in the Western hemisphere, or I'm sorry, in the Northern hemisphere, because of its relationship with the seasons, you know, it's the point in the year when all of the major crops have been harvested. And, you know, the earth is going through this process of you know, going into winter mode. And that point is a point that that has been acknowledged in many lands as this place of closeness to spirit. And so it's a good time to continue honoring those who have died, to offer them gifts, to say their names, to look at their faces, to bring their to bring their energy into the into the present. Thank you for that beautiful elucidation on yeah ways to to thread in ritual and be more in relationship with it surrounding death of loved ones. And I love how you spoke of that time in the northern hemisphere, known as Halloween, Hallow's Eve, Samhain. There's all these, you know markers and time that can be profound portals when people are doing things like honoring their ancestors that people have been doing for a long time. So there's, again, this collective week. And then other options could be too, if that doesn't feel right for you, honoring people on the day they were born, you know, or the day they passed. And that's something that in my family is acknowledged. And done so you know on a loved one's whose past birthday say or their death day um so there's just so many ways to integrate that but it can really help normalize death i think for everyone in the family and for ourselves even when these times of passing or transitional times of those we loved are really honored with full reverence and pausing and attention you know it's all about attention. Yeah. And and can I say one more thing about this? Please do. So my partner's mother passed when my daughter was four years old. And it was such a gift. I mean, you know, like tragedy 
because you know she died younger than we would have hoped her to, but she died at home and we were able to be there with her. But my daughter was just at this point of having any sense of the delineation between life and death and what it means to die and what death even is. And there were all of these, I was like shocked to find that there were all of these reflections from the world of pop culture. There was like Moana had just come out. <laughs> there was all of these other shows like, uh, you know, Elena of Avalor and some other, the movie Coco. Um, there were all of these shows, cartoons that sort of reflected back this idea of um, the spirit and where the spirit goes and that the spirit kind of goes on. And I had been doing ritual with my daughter since she was born, you know, before she was born even. But there was something about this incredible moment where she kind of began to understand that here was this person who was living, who was not going to be with us anymore physically, you know, and then as time passed and we were sort of experiencing this in real time, but that, you know, we were continuing to talk about her and honor her spirit and talk about her spirit. Something happened for my daughter where she, I think, really... It, it was a death that allowed her to understand this idea of spirit. And without that experience, I think it might have been much more abstract to her for a very long time. And instead of being this scary thing, it was so beautiful. It was beautiful for her to have this gateway into understanding that there's, you know, so much we can't see. And there's, you know, this whole world that we can't see it, but we feel it. And death is a part of that. And it's a hard and sad part of that often, but it is also so important and such a portal to, for many of us, I think, to really experiencing what we're even talking about. When we mm -hmm. say the world of spirit, it's like for some, for some of us, it, it isn't until we lose someone that we really love and then continue to maintain a relationship with them after their death that we can even understand what any of this stuff is about the unseen world. Yes, thank you for sharing that profound experience and I honor your loss of your partner's mother and your grandmother and the ways that you worked with those losses. And they are like, death is part of the cycle of nature. And if we bypass the speaking of it, the pausing, the lessons from it, the deep digestion of it, and the ritualization of it, then we miss out on a really big phase of life's curriculum, I feel like, you know, and then eventually it catches up with us and it happens. But if we rush it, and I feel like even in our processing, and this is like a whole nother podcast I want to do just on death, <laughs> but to really keep it pithy, like our processing of death here in the United States, often when it comes to the body, when someone passes is like, okay, now go. Like they get, it's like the body gets cleared out really quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a ceremony, you know, really quickly and, you know, not in all traditions. And I know the Jewish tradition, I feel like does it a lot more skillfully than a lot of other traditions here in the United States. However, it's pretty quick. 
and I feel like there there just needs to be a whole reframing and reevaluation of the system. And it sounds like with your partner and and the work they do, that's very um, close to your heart. And I didn't know that, so I love at least beginning this conversation. Thank you for your wisdom mm-hmm. on on all of it. And something I wanted to ask you in your experience, because something that we share is having come into this land of healers and amazing realms of, of spirit and, and being with great teachers and studying with a lot of amazing people as a young person is how incredible it is. I'm almost like incredulous when I go on social and there's like all the hashtags of like witches, shamans, priestesses, wizards, herbalists, you know, it's like exploded. I feel like because of technology, these terms and the proliferation of them and people claiming them and referring to themselves as them. And, you know, collectively, put simplistically, they refer to healers and individuals who hold deep life wisdom, you know, and they're just becoming more and more used and widely identified with. And to me, it's just so exciting and fascinating and wild to watch. So I'm wondering, as someone who as well, was introduced as a young person to these fears and traveling in them. Have you experienced that too? Oh gosh, yes. Right? Yeah. Is it unbelievable? It's wild. Yeah. Um, as you as you say, I I started pretty intensely training in a pretty niche, unusual spiritual tradition when I was thirteen, and um, have come to see those practices and traditions become much, much, much more visible and accepted and trendy. And, you know, there's certainly a part of me that's like, hey, I was here so long ago and I've been doing this for so long and you like just heard the word yesterday. And, (laughs) you know, I'm sure I'm sure you have some of your own versions of this. But in truth, I'm actually I think it's so great in the sense that I see a lot of these traditions as having the common denominator of helping people live with greater compassion, to be more aligned with the sacred aspects of nature and, you know, the the sort of sense of our own lives as being intricately connected with the energy of all beings on the planet. And that this is a great awakening time that these ideas and these practices are helping people to find their way with healing and meaning that is just absolutely desperately needed. Totally, totally. Well, well said. Couldn't have said it any better. I wanted to just start to wind down the conversation with your work. And I love that you use the word feminism in it, front and center, Because I feel like in a lot of circles of healers and even mystics I know, I notice men and women still shying away from this term, you know, this term of feminism. And it's something that I just wanted to speak with you about. Because when I saw that, I was like, yes, someone in these circles, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking of it, because, you know, as part of this growing, and as you said, this like amazingly catapulted time of awakening and collective consciousness of awakening and people claiming these archetypes and feelings of associating with these different terms, which, 
shaman, priestess, wizard, herbalist, whatever it is. And yet they're still, in my experience, a shying away from this claiming and reclamation of the of the word feminism and being a feminist and, and the, you know, wanting to declare one's like understanding and belief of just, you know, equality for all genders mm-hmm. on the whole continuum, you know, and, and I'm wondering, you know, can you speak to this passion of yours for the term why you highlight it with your work thank you for doing so and why you think it's still something that if you think is still not as being shouted from the rooftops yet yeah sure well one of the things that was so fun and exciting about starting my own work was that I felt like I could just like say all the words that feel like important to me and just be like this is who I am and right you know And I really want people to know that. And if that doesn't work for you, then that is totally great. But I'm probably not for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's something so liberating about finding the words that feel true to oneself and being able to claim them, understanding that they're not for everyone. So I use a lot of words, right, bold, upfront. And I work with kids, right? And so this was very important to me to be able to say, I am feminist, I am trans-inclusive, I am anti-racist, I am, you know, witchy. And and to understand that that's not going to work for everyone. And that's okay. But the word feminism specifically for me is a word that I claim and I love and I feel proud of because you know, as I said, I started doing this work within a sort of women-centered goddess tradition when I was just 13 years old. And I had the great gift of, for so many years in my life, sitting in circles of women, sharing our stories, talking about our lives, really seeing the beautiful and deep and complex and holy experiences of being a woman and to know that we still in this world do not have equality or justice for women. You know, this is still a big issue and huge, huge issue. And I understand why people have hard times with that word sometimes, especially I think because White feminists have really been gatekeepers of spiritual tradition in the West. You know, we've mm-hmm. we've really been the sort of teachers and the owners and the business people who have sort of been the the ones, you know, who have been doing this work and saying what is and isn't this or that or the other thing. And that has really been painful for people who are not white or not women and And, you know, particularly I've lived through many spaces that, you know, where feminism was sort of code for not trans inclusive or, you know, some other forms of exclusion. And so I really, I claim the word feminist with deep respect to the work of of folks who have been doing intersectional feminist work meaning that, you know, there's uh, acknowledgement that feminism or gender identity is one aspect of our lived experiences. And it, it, it changes, you know, what it means to be a woman changes 
with your race, with your socioeconomic experience, with your cultural heritage. And so there's, to say feminist sometimes does imply a sort of vision of, of white womanhood and that to say intersectional feminism or to sort of add some of these other specific words that I use like trans-inclusive and anti-racist is to engage with the value around women's lives and the feminine experience, but not to value that higher or erase that there are these other experiences of identity and womanhood or not womanhood that exist for many people with, within that word. Thank you so much for that really, really powerful answer and important answer. And I love that important aspect that you mentioned that is really part of the healing of this word, I think, and the reclamation of it is when we're speaking of it and perhaps adding those things like trans-inclusive, intersectionality, those terms, anti-racists, you know, that are important um, as we reclaim and refine the understanding and collective experience of that word. And I feel like part of the the doing so and the the providence that it will happen is the really real popularity of the goddess archetypes and the the goddess focus in a lot of different spiritual and even mindfulness traditions that I've noticed that's been reemerging, which I just think it's so exciting. Mm-hmm. I'd say in the past, like particularly 10 years, I've noticed that. And I know you work a lot with these energies and archetypes. I saw on your website that you you work with uh, Persephone and Inanna stories. So for listeners, they're beautiful stories that are so important to, to delve into if you're interested in this work. And I've talked uh, about on different podcasts and soulcasts. I have some of the, the Indian goddess archetypes. I'm wondering, though, because something that you do, which I love, that is so inclusive in your work, is you also incorporate working with goddesses from truly all over the world with African goddesses and South American goddesses and really all over. And so I'm wondering yeah, if you could just, as we start to close the conversation, speak about the power of working with these goddess energies and archetypes from all over, what you've witnessed firsthand in the way of empowerment of doing so for people of all gender identification types and also just how you've come to be in relationship with archetypes that are from another culture. Yeah, absolutely. This is some of the stuff I love the most. So I am white, but many of the kids in my programs are not, or, you know, they have ancestry from other parts of the world or mixed ancestry. And it became very clear to me pretty early on that so many young people come to my programs with huge enthusiasm for Greek mythology. You know, there's so much pop culture out there about Greek mythology. And so many kids of all different backgrounds love Greek mythology. And yet, like, no, next to nothing about other mythology from other parts of the world. And it, it felt like such a loss for all of us to have such a limited sense of, you know, what's possible, what has existed, what 
still exists in many cultures and areas of the world. And so, you know, I started saying, all right, well, you know, my, my key program works with the goddess Artemis, but who else is out there? What other goddesses of the moon are there around the world? And so, you know, we learned about goddesses from the Philippines and we learned about goddesses from Africa, from, from West Africa specifically. And, you know, we learned about goddesses from South America in the Mayan culture and, you know, just looking at who else is out there and what else is out there. And it's been this extraordinary experience of both, you know, feeling so excited for the young people who are, are discovering then that, that their ancestors have and had these beautiful ancestral belief systems and, and lineages to get excited about, and that that better helps us see each other in the here and now, you know, that helps us to see each other's roots and know more about, you know, the beautiful traditions that have existed on this planet. It is. It's so healing and inclusive, inspirational for those listeners who are of descent from all over the world, which, you know, the majority of us are. And so to, to really, you know, in this age where we can Google and, and have copious amounts of resources to start to explore our ancestral lines and then in the way of the archetypes and energies that are from those places from around the world can be really, really profound in the way of our healing, in the way of our understanding of uh, others in our communities. It's, it's really, I really commend you for that work and that doorway that you've opened with that work and encourage people to start looking up the and the gods too you know of course there's so many amazing archetypes of of the gods and even with my the the people in my family who identify as male you know that's been exciting for them because with my daughter we're just like all about goddess like we're all you know goddess goddess and my wonderful males in my life are are that way too but it's been really fun and I've been mindful too to make sure to also highlight you know the gods and then we can all identify with all of those archetypes and the ones that make sense for us, of course. But that's really, really profound work. And I thank you for that, that work that you're doing and that idea. So Tara, would you mind punctuating our time together with maybe a minute or two guided visualization, meditation, benediction, whatever might feel resonant to you in this moment to close our conversation? Yeah. I would love to. So I invite you to close your eyes if you're able and to take three deep breaths. And as you breathe, open your mind to the world around you. And you can start with the physical world, the trees and the grass or the sky and the earth. But allow yourself to feel that those things are the surface level that allows you to experience the magic that exists in every being. 
the energy and the vibrancy in all of life, in all of the world. And that as you breathe, you are breathing in the magic of all of creation and breathing out your own sacred magic. So one more time, breathe in the magic of all of creation and breathe out your own magic. That's what I got. Well, people can continue to do that beautiful magic breathing in and out exercise when they're in their day-to-day life. That can be a ritual. <laughs> Set your phone for every hour <laughs> as a reminder. <laughs> I love that. That was lovely and luscious. Thank you so much. Now, where can folks find out about your amazing work in this world? Well, you can head to my website, which is www.artemispack.org, and we're on Instagram, and uh, we'd love to connect with you. Awesome. Tara is offering some amazing Patreon deals to all of my members for her online Artemis school and some other bonus content for my supporters. So head on over to my website, modernmystic.love, and check out all the goodness, freebies, and discounts waiting for you over there from her and from all my incredible guests as a member. Tara, thank you so much for your visionary work in this world that is both unique and profound. You're your pure magic. Oh, thank you, Kilkenny. I'm so happy to be with you today. Namaste. Blessed be. Blessed be. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please write me a review on whichever platform you are listening. Also, check out my exciting Patreon page at patreon.com slash modernmysticlove where I offer all sorts of uplifting yoga classes, meditation classes, and other amazing offerings from my guests on this podcast to all my incredible supporters. Even folks who donate at the $5 a month level are so appreciated as every cent helps this busy mama of three. Or check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can purchase yoga videos of all levels with me, ranging from gentle yoga up through advanced asana, and also meditation videos there. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste.